citizens for granted. In fact, how often do we hear people complain and whinge and moan about the standards and the conditions and uh, the unfairness of life within Australia? It happens regularly. Well, in our reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, we find that Moses encourages God's people to daily remember the Lord, to remember the God, to constantly remember how God has uh, saved them from their slavery in Egypt, how he has redeemed them, as it were. And they are to proclaim and to teach all that God has commanded them to others, to the next generation, as they go about their everyday life. But did you notice the warning that came at the end of our reading? Did you see that? Did you hear it? The warning was that they were not to grow complacent or to become forgetful after they have experienced God's salvation and blessing for themselves. Verse 12 said, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And I think it's still the same for us in God's church today. In the 21st century, we too need to constantly remember the Lord and how great and wonderful our God is and to remember how God has redeemed us out of our slavery to sin and how he has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We too need to constantly teach the next generation, about the greatness of our God and of the salvation that he offers them through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection. And we too need to proclaim the glorious gospel, yeah? This amazing good news as we go about our everyday life. Now, remembering what God has done is not like you know, looking back through a photo album and reminiscing about the past, and, you know, wishing that we were back in the past, where we were, you know, back in the good old days. No, that's not what remembering God is like. We're not to sit back and relive the past or try to live in the past. We need to constantly refresh our vision of God, our vision of God and what he's done for us to refresh our vision of the excitement of the gospel, of our salvations, so that we can be encouraged right here and now and be excited as we look to the future. To look back and see how God has worked in our lives in the past should both encourage us and energise us in our Christian faith and service right here and now. And yet, sadly... It's amazing how many Christians seem to have lost their sense of the awe and wonder of God. Oh, they might come to church, they might go to a Bible study, but for them it's just something that they do. They have actually, you know, they go about it without giving God much of a thought at all. For them it might have even become a chore rather than a delight. So a few, few moments this morning, I want us to think about the wonder of God 
and the excitement of the gospel. For we can easily lose sight of what was so once amazing for us, what was so mind-blowing for us when we first heard about it. We can now just take that for granted. We know it. It's become commonplace. Alice McGrath says that one of the simplest ways of rediscovering the wonders of the gospel is to read the accounts of the death of Jesus, but to read them as if you were reading them for the very first time. He says, take a verse like Matthew 27, verse 40, where the crowds are around the cross and they're looking up at Jesus, they're shouting at Jesus, if you are the Son of God... Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And then he says, allow those words to, you know, bounce around in your mind that even though Jesus is the Son of God, he didn't come down from the cross. He didn't save himself. Instead, he stayed there and saved us. It's good to spend time reading through the passion narratives and allowing the fine details of Christ's atoning death to sink in. His sacrifice on the cross, once for all. The fact that he was made to be sin, who knew no sin. Made to be sin for us. To reflect on the suffering and the pain and the hurt and the separation and finally death. It's good to let all those things hit home and then ask, why? Why did the wonderful and amazing and all-powerful Son of God die on the cross? And the answer in the end is, I'm the reason. You're the reason. Jesus went to the cross for you and me. And it's so easy to get used to that idea, isn't it? You know, that that phrase becomes almost mechanical for us. We say it without giving it much thought. Jesus died for us, or Jesus died for me. We know that. But the danger is losing sight of the wonder that lies behind such a phrase. Martin Luther believed that experience has a very important part to play in the Christian life. You see, Luther saw a real danger that Christian preaching and teaching can simply be about words. You know, all you've got to do is get the words right, and that's it. But Luther's point is this. How on earth are you going to talk about the grace of God if God's grace is nothing but a printed word on a page? How are you going to talk about the grace of God if you have never personally experienced God's grace in your own life? Luther goes on to make the point that the gospel is about justification and forgiveness. And really, you can't speak about those things unless you've experienced God's forgiveness. As we gather as a church, what is our vision of God like? Do you see God as being the sovereign Lord who is absolutely holy, whose glory fills the whole earth? 
Our times together should be a time of encouragement and sharing that will refresh our sense of the awe and wonder of God. Excuse me. In the passage that we read too from Isaiah 6, Isaiah talks about seeing the Lord. And he sees the Lord seated upon a throne in the year that King Isaiah died. And that short statement, in the year that King Isaiah died, probably means nothing to our 21st century years. Yeah? But Isaiah was king within the uh, kingdom of Judah for 52 years. Came to the throne when he was 16 after his father was assassinated. Reigned for 52 years. And we're told that he was a person who walked with God. And then things went a little bit awry in the last 10 years when we read that when he became powerful, pride got the better of him. And then God afflicted him with leprosy until his death in those last 10 years. But in the year that Uzziah died, that was the year that things started to unravel for the people of Judah and for the city of Jerusalem. You see, Assyria began its move into the northern kingdom of Israel and then further south into the city of Jerusalem. And the next few decades would be horrible for the people of Judah, finally with the Babylonians completely taking them over. But in that year, the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they um, covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Desire is dead. But God lives on. Even though the earthly king is dead, even though Uzziah was no longer on his throne, God still is. And Isaiah sees the sovereign Lord high and exalted and seated on his throne. Hey, listen, God is not contained in the Ark of the Covenant or on the Ark of the Covenant. He's not contained in that little box that's in the temple in the Holy of Holies. No, God is on his throne, ruling over all of his creation. In Great Britain, when a monarch dies, and we've just experienced that, haven't we, with the death of Queen Elizabeth, when a monarch dies, the traditional proclamation is, the queen is dead, long live the king. And the idea being that the nation is never without a sovereign. There is always one who sits on the throne of Great Britain. Well, how much more is that true for the kingdom of God? God is always on his throne, 
regardless of any political landscape that we live in, God is the everlasting king. Psalm 90 verse 2 says that the Lord, or says of the Lord Almighty, from everlasting to everlasting, eternity to eternity in the old language, you are God. There is not a single head of state in all the world that will be there in a hundred years' time. It's said that the turnover rate in world leadership is 100%. Like King Uzziah, they will all vanish off the face of the earth. But not God. God is from everlasting to everlasting. And this God is seated upon his throne. In other words, he is sovereign. John Piper says, No vision of heaven has ever caught a glimpse of God mowing the grass or shining his shoes or filling out reports or loading a truck. He says, no, God sits and he sits on a throne, his throne, and he is in complete control. Now, please note, we don't give God the authority to rule over us. God has that authority whether we like it or not. God is sovereign. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted. God is powerful, all powerful. He's higher than any other. And he is exalted. He is held in great awe and wonder and reverent praise. And we're told the train of his robe filled the temple, that is, the heavenly temple or throne room. I don't know if you've watched their Netflix series called The Crown, but right back at the beginning they showed scenes of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II back in 1953. And for such a petite figure, she had this massively long train behind her as she walked in. I read that when Prince Diana was married to Prince Charles, the train of her wedding dress was eight metres long, about 25 feet in the old language. Well, here, Isaiah sings the king of all kings as having a massive and pervasive presence that completely fills the space around him. What a great statement about the splendour of the king, yeah? His train fills the temple. And then there's the seraphim. They seem to be pretty impressive as well, don't they? Yes, we read about them, maybe we read about them again in our, uh, our passage from Revelation 4, but it's interesting by name, this is the only part of the Bible where they, they get mentioned. And they're pretty impressive. They have six wings. But they only use two of their wings to fly. With the others, they cover their faces and they cover their feet. You see, not even the seraphim can look upon God. And Isaiah not only sees these angels, he hears them, doesn't he? And their song is one of the best-known songs in all of Scripture. They're shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 
And that's interesting because as you read through the book of Isaiah, you'll find that one of Isaiah's favourite titles for God is the Holy One of Israel. Three times this word is, this word is repeated to give emphasis. God is not just holy, he is supremely holy. We've been singing about that in our songs this morning, haven't we? God is one of a kind. He is alone. He is unique. There is no one else like him in all of creation. R.C. Sproul says that no other attribute of God is ever mentioned three times in a row. We never read in scripture of God being love, love, love. Or of God being grace, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. Only do we hear of holy, holy, holy. And the fact that this attribute of God is repeated three times really leaves us in no doubt that God alone is holy. But that's only one half of what the seraphim cry out, isn't it? They cry out to each other, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's glory is everywhere. And his glory is the display of his holiness. There is no place on earth where God's glory cannot be seen. And notice how the angel's song is no quiet lullaby, is it? It's a powerful declaration of the glory and majesty and holiness of the almighty sovereign God. And it was very moving. It was literally very moving. For it shook the doorposts and the thresholds. And the temple was filled with smoke. This living God is truly awesome. And we get the same picture as you read the New Testament too in Luke chapter 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration or in Revelation 1 with the Apostle John's vision of the risen Christ. It's awesome. Do we still have such an awe and respect for God? Do we praise his glory and majesty and holiness? Do we humble ourselves before him? Or have we sort of domesticated God and made him safe and comfortable and approachable in spite of our sin? It's so easy to think of God in little terms. But Isaiah's vision is a vision of God that overwhelms him and that forces him to his knees because he knew that he was in the presence of someone majestic and holy, someone who was in authority, someone beyond adequate description even. And when you come into the presence of the almighty God or you study God through his revelation to us, the Bible, you are meant to be overwhelmed by what you find. see, as a read about God, what we discover should force us to our knees in adoration and praise. 
For it allows us to catch a vision of God in all of his greatness and a vision of ourselves in all of our smallness. Psalm 27 verse 4 says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in his house all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. How often do we seek to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? As we gather together week by week to thank and praise and worship God, we should come with an attitude that seeks to lift our hearts and our minds up to heaven, towards God, and to see God in all his glory. What Isaiah saw drove him to his knees. Verse 5 says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When you catch a glimpse of the beauty and wonder of God, then you realise, as Isaiah did, that you have no right to draw near to him at all. How can a sinful creature like me draw near to a holy God? And as Isaiah wrestles with that thought, he is overwhelmed by his vision. And he says, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here, I shouldn't be seeing this, I'm trespassing. I'm not worthy to be here. Isaiah realises that he was unclean before the Lord. He was unclean and had absolutely no hope of measuring up to God's standards of holiness. But then Isaiah speaks about the great atoning work of God. And notice that this is entirely God's initiative. It's God's doing. And note that it came from the altar, from the place of sacrifice. God moves towards Isaiah and he removes his guilt and he atones for his sin. God makes him, the unclean, clean. How wonderful it is to see the gospel of forgiveness at work in the Old Testament, yeah? What a gift, what an undeserved gift of God's grace and forgiveness. And for us today, God has done something about our sin, hasn't he? God has moved towards us in his son Jesus in order to reconcile us back to himself. God made his son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. And through Jesus' death, On the cross, God has now made atonement for our sin. God has now provided a way of cleansing whereby our guilt can be taken away and we can stand before him in an uncondemned condition. When you encounter the living God, you are forever changed. 
And if that's happened in your life, then God wants you to teach and to proclaim his greatness and his salvation to others, to the next generation. As Isaiah's vision ends, he says in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. There's a real sense in which our vision of God should motivate us to want to go and tell others about the wonder of God. It should indeed um, revitalise our willingness to serve him and therefore to serve one another. In response to God's forgiveness and cleansing, we read here that Isaiah submitted himself entirely into God's service. Hey, listen, are you excited about God? Are you excited about the gospel? Are you excited and thankful for the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ? Are you excited about the eternal life that he's given you? Are you excited about the glorious future that awaits you in heaven? Are you excited that God loved you so much that he reached out in his love and rescued you from the sewer of sin and death. If so, great. If not, why not? Isaiah began by being terrified by what he saw. But then he is reassured and he is forgiven and then God sends him out into the world. When we meet together week by week, Are you able to put aside the distractions of the week and gaze upon the beauty of God? Yeah. In all his wonder, in all his majesty. Do you get a fresh awareness of God's grace, of his mercy, of his forgiveness and of his love? Are you challenged and enabled and encouraged and excited to then go out and tell others about the wonders of God and his grace? Our God is a holy and awesome God, yeah? Far above anything we can ever imagine. But this holy and awesome God is also one who forgives our sins. And if you have tasted that free gift of his forgiveness, then we, like Isaiah, sorry, uh, yeah, Isaiah, are being sent out being sent out. God said, uh, I've lost it. God sent Brittany to the Middle East. He sent Anton to Greece. He sent Shamil, uh, Sam and uh, Shamila to Nepal. He sent the Chapmans to Mexico. He's sending Carrie to Broome with YWAM. Where might God be sending you? For most of us, it will be to our families or to our friends or to our work colleagues or maybe to our neighbours. You might be the only Bible that they will ever read. You see, God is still looking for messengers today. But if you haven't yet personally experienced God's cleansing and forgiveness and his restoring grace, then... Don't go. 
don't go. For your words will be but empty words. Empty words because you have not experienced that transforming love and power of the mighty God in your own life. My prayer for us as brothers and sisters in Christ and as his church in this place is that you will not lose sight of the awe and wonder and excitement of God. That when you gather together as this, his church here at West Leaderville, that you come with an attitude that first and foremostly seeks after God in all his glory and that concentrates on pleasing God in all that you say and do. I want to finish with the words of a good old hymn written by Walter Smith towards the end of the 19th century. And the first verse reads like this. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we pray. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you. We thank you for your greatness, your majesty, your holiness, your sovereignty over all things. We thank you that there is never a time when you are not there, when you are not in control of all that takes place. We thank you for your promise that you will be with us every moment of every day. We thank you for your promise of the future, that being forgiven in Christ, we are indeed have a, a future that awaits us in heaven with you and your Son. Father, we thank you too for the promise that even when we go through times of trouble and hardship, you are there and you are helping us through those times. Father, we give you our thanks. But help us as your people to indeed be willing to share with others what you have done for us through your son Jesus. To share how you've been involved in our lives day by day. And we pray that what we say and do will indeed bring you honour and glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.